have you heard the little phrase, sometimes put to a little jingle, that simply says, sharing, sharing, that's what Christians do. How many of you have heard that before, used it before? Okay, not, not quite as many as I thought. That was something that, I mean, I grew up just hearing and knowing. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not used probably in the context or the way that it should be. Because especially as a child, sharing, sharing, that's what Christians do, usually was not, you know, a motivational statement to myself to get me to share with someone else. It was usually used as a barb to get somebody else to share with me. You know what I mean? I remember one time singing the little jingle. Sharing, sharing, that's what Christians do to my younger sister. She had something that I wanted her to share with me. I don't even know what it was today. It, it was a toy or something, but I wanted it. And so I sang that little jingle to get her to share what it was she possessed at the moment with me, to which she responded by looking me square in the eyes and saying, well, I'm not a Christian yet. So I guess she didn't need to share with me. But that's the way that sometimes it was used. And it's the way sometimes we live, isn't it? We don't like to think of ourselves as, can I use the word entitled? But sometimes we think that maybe we've earned or that we deserve Blessings, people to share with us. The refrain, sharing, sharing, that's what Christians do, is truth. It is something that we do, but not in the way that I used it with my sister, not in the way that we sometimes think of it shouldn't be used as a barb to get others to share with us. But it should be a refrain that is a slogan of our lives to prompt and motivate us. Because the Bible identifies Jesus' disciples, those who are his followers, as people who share. We're stepping into a very unique portion of the gospel according to Luke. Because this passage that we're going to see today is going to introduce what we'll look at likely for three weeks following this Sunday, a series within the gospel according to Luke that I'm going to call God's Kingdom Manifesto. Jesus in this passage will be ushered, transitioned into a message that was common, that was normal for Jesus, a sermon that he regularly preached with the crowds that would gather. And identi it identifies the aspects of God's kingdom that is God's kingdom is being built and set up. The characteristics that God desires to see in his followers. But even as we transition into that, the passage before us today identifies Jesus' followers as those who share. That's what this passage leads us to recognize. What do we have that he wants us to share with others? Let that question provoke your thinking as we read Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. The Bible declares, And it came to pass in those days 
that he, speaking of Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the author. And he came down with them and stood in the plain in the company of his disciples. And a great multitude of people out of all Judea in Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Luke shows us that Jesus came to a crucial time in his ministry. How was this a crucial time in Jesus' ministry? We've seen over the last several weeks how the religious leaders were transitioning in their approach to Jesus. Going into Luke chapter 5, they investigated him. They were looking to hear him and see him for themselves and begin to develop an understanding of who this Jesus was, what he represented, and how he interacted with the Jewish people and the Jewish faith according to the law. But because of what took place in Luke chapter 5, as Jesus healed the paralytic, but more crucially forgave his sin, now they're no longer investigating Jesus, they are antagonizing Jesus is going to face opposition from this time forward. So it was a crucial time in his ministry because of that. Additionally, Jesus thought about his work. What was Jesus' work about? He identified it himself on several occasions. Later in Luke chapter 19 verse number 10 perhaps the most familiar refrain of jesus's mission found in the gospel according to luke it would simply say this jesus's own words for the son of man is come to what seek and to save that which was lost that was jesus's mission he would accomplish that mission primarily through sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave but i want you to pay attention to something very carefully luke penned not only this epistle this letter the gospel according to luke but he was also the penman of the book of acts and in acts chapter 1 verse 1 listen to what luke wrote in introducing that book he said, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, what? Began both to do and teach. Wait a minute, Luke. Doesn't the gospel according to Luke that you penned already contain the record of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And the answer to that is yes. So if that was Jesus' work, why then, as you're penning Acts, are you saying, I wrote the former treatise, Luke, to show what Jesus began both to do and to teach? Because, friends, though that, the death, burial, and resurrection identified Jesus' primary mission, that was not the conclusion of his work. Jesus wanted his mission, his work, to continue through the church, through his followers. And that's what Acts is about. It's the continuing work of Jesus through his followers and through his church. And by the way, friends, that 
work continues today through his followers and through his church. Do you understand today that as we sit here listening, you and I are a part of the work Jesus started? Does that speak to you? Does that give a little more oomph? A little more weight? A little more value to our mission and our our responsibility as followers of Jesus and as a church? We're not just here trying to accomplish missions like like other uh, groups, other clubs, other agencies, other, uh, legally speaking, non-profits, though, though they may do good things, though they may have good missions. Friends, you and I are a part of the work that Jesus started when he was here. And Jesus was thinking about that work. Not just what he needed to do, but how that work would continue after he left. Jesus had a lot on his mind. And the importance of all of it drove him to do something. Look at verse number 12 again. What did everything that Jesus had on his mind drive him to do? To pray. To go spend time with the Father. To seek his father. To pray for wisdom. To pray for strength. I'm sure Jesus, knowing what was before him, regularly prayed as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will. I don't think that that was the first time Jesus prayed that type of prayer. I'm sure he did it regularly throughout his life and ministry. The very Son of God, who stands equal to the Father as a man in his humanity needed to seek his Father. He faced critical situations and problems in his humanity by seeking his Father and relying on the power of the Spirit, just as we should. This represents Jesus approached critical decisions and times in his life. How do you approach them? Have you ever faced critical decisions or times in your life? There ever been problems and you weren't sure how to move forward? Transitions in life and you had some major decisions facing you? Hey, it, it's Graduate Recognition Sunday. We've had the, the privilege to honor their, their accomplishment in graduating. Graduates, that's a transitional time of life, isn't it? How have you approached the next step? The decision about what comes next? Others of us, we be at that type of recognizable transitional step in life but you may be at a place in your life where you know a transition needs to take place you're being faced with something that you don't know what to do with. you're you're facing that that crunch time where a decision needs to be made and you're unsure of how to move forward you're, you're facing something critical in your life and you need strength, you need help, how do you approach those times in your life? Let's learn from the example of Jesus. What did he do when he faced those times in life? He sought God. He spent time in prayer. How much time does the Bible tell us here? All night in prayer to the Father. Spurgeon, writing said one night alone in prayer might make us new men changed from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth from trembling to triumphing what power there is through the avenue of prayer 
Let's learn from Jesus' example. So Jesus spent this time in prayer because of the opposition, because of his desire to continue his work through his followers. And the very next morning, following his night spent praying, Jesus called his disciples to himself. Now, if you're like me, when you see that statement in the word of God, you think of how many people? Twelve, right? It's, it's just natural. We often talk about the twelve disciples, but, but were those twelve Jesus' only disciples? No. There were a multitude of men and women who followed Jesus like the twelve did. There were those who went with Jesus various places, who ministered alongside him as he incorporated them into his work. And now Jesus is calling that multitude, however many there are, but among them he selected 12 who would specifically be set apart as his apostles. I want you to to think about these. Even as you look at these 12, there are some things we, we can pick out about them. The reality is these 12, we only know some specifics about a few of them. If I were to ask you to describe the 12 apostles of Jesus, you might be able to tell me some things about Peter, James, and John. Perhaps you could tell me a little bit about Andrew. Maybe you could even tell me a a, a little bit about Philip or Nathaniel. You might be able to identify something about Thomas because of some of his experience later on. You could tell me something likely about Judas Iscariot. But the reality is we can't We can't describe these guys too specifically, too detailed. We don't know much about them, but there is something that I want you to grab from the listing here that we do know about them. And here it is very simply. These 12 came from a variety of backgrounds. Some had been fishermen. Some had been a tax collector. Some came from Galilee. Some came from Judea. Some came from a a place in life where they are specifically known as a Canaanite. The group who lived there prior to God bringing his nation, the nation of Israel, and who had been who had been judged and had been condemned. Here's a group of guys who apart from Jesus Christ would even naturally hate each other. You've got one Levi, he's a tax collector. He's a traitor of the Jewish people. And so all the other 11 would have reason to hate him, but there's one in particular who would really have reason to hate him. Simon Zelotes. The zealot. I mean, if, if we understand that properly, this guy was a part of a group who were a, a, a zealous group. They were a, an extremist group, an extremist, we might call it, right-wing group, who were zealous for Orthodox Judaism, who were zealous for the law, who were zealous for God, and were, were missioned with expelling any non-Jew from the coasts of Israel. They were involved in, in sabotage. They were involved in assassinations. I mean, if there was anyone who, who among Jesus' followers who would have just a natural hatred for each other, I'd have, I'd have liked to have been there to see what the reaction was when Jesus called these two guys and one and the other found out what the other was before coming to follow Jesus and what the reaction would have been. I mean, did, did Simon have stayed from grabbing a knife and going at Levi? I don't know. Levi shivered when he heard 
Simon, oh, by the way, he, he was a zealot. And they would have naturally hated each other. But here's the reality of what ended up happening. Eventually, Jesus had to work on them quite a bit during his three to three and a half years with them. But eventually, those 12 were able to set aside all of those differences for the sake of working together to accomplish the mission. And friends, here again is a very good reminder for us to set aside our differences for the sake of Jesus. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus worth putting aside our differences for? If you and I were to sit down and discuss our lives, if we were to, to discuss our, um, our political views, if you and I were to sit down and discuss our favorite sports teams, if you and I were to sit down and discuss views on some, some even passages of Scripture, if you and I were to sit down and talk about our backgrounds, where we're at in life right now, our views on different areas of life, do you know what the reality is? We'd probably find a lot of areas in which we differ. We don't agree completely. There are some things that you and I might have some hot and heavy debates about that we might even argue about a little bit. But isn't Jesus worth setting aside those things for? To accomplish the mission that he's called us to? That's what I see here as Jesus calls these twelves. He was con concerned about his work going forward. He prayed about it, and then he called from among his disciples these twelve who would continue that work along with the, the other followers of Jesus Christ, along with and within the church. Jesus would continue his work through them. Is Jesus' work continuing in this world? We're setting aside our preferences, our ways, our viewpoints, so we can make a difference for him. I'm here to declare to you this morning, yes, he is worth it. Is worth it. So let's focus on doing it. As he called the twelve, them. As he's given us something to share. They eventually learn to set aside their differences for his sake. So we must learn to set aside our differences to share these things. With the world. I want you to see what I see in this text that Jesus gave them to share. Number one, would you notice this? As disciples of Jesus, we should share Jesus' message with the world. We should share his message with the world. As we learn in this text, Jesus called his disciples, he set apart 12 from the larger group to be his apostles. That did not mean that Jesus' other disciples were not needed, that, that he was sending them away. These 12 were the basis on which the church would be founded. In fact, he would say that his church would be built upon the foundation of these 12 apostles with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Okay, so... These 12 had a unique and a specially called role from Jesus. But I want you to notice something. The word apostle itself identifies a simple truth that applied to all of his disciples, including us now. The word's simplest meaning is a delegate, an ambassador of the gospel. One writer said it, Way. The idea behind the Greek word for apostle is ambassador. The word is apostolos, which means sent one. It describes someone who represents another and has a message from their sender. And so in its simplest form, 
The word represents the truth of Jesus' desire to continue his work in the world through his followers by sharing his message. We are sent into this world to share his message. In fact, I want you to catch what Paul penned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul uses a different word than the word translated apostle in our text, but it is a synonym. It is a similar word with similar meaning. And here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, re- <coughs> reconciling the word, world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? You know what it is in our political world, don't you? An ambassador is a representative nation that often spends time in another nation working for the good of the nation that they represent. Working to further the mission by building alliances, by perhaps giving warnings as needed, by, by being good representative, by putting forth a good front for the nation that they represent to accomplish a mission. In so many ways, believers act in a similar fashion for Jesus Christ. We are aliens and foreigners in a strange land to act as a representative for our king. Who is our king? It's Jesus. Friends, can I remind you that of any political affiliation of this You serve King Jesus. You have a responsibility to respect and honor the the human authority above you. But above your allegiance to a governor or a senator or a representative or a president or vice president, you have and should be allegiant to King Jesus. Where are we aliens and foreigners you say pastor i i'm still right here where i was born you might even be able to claim you were born in nash county and you're still here i'm not an alien or a foreigner am i you are the world the place that we are foreigners to we have a higher citizenship greater than your citizenship nash county or will wherever you're from, greater than your citizenship in the state of North Carolina, and yes, even greater than your citizenship as a citizen of the United States of America. You are a citizen of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven. So wherever you find yourself here in this world, you are an alien, you are a foreigner, you are a stranger here, and you have a mission from the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you to represent him in this world? Paul tells us in this text, through the ministry and the word of reconciliation. Ministry is that same word translated as deacon, So the Bible is telling us that there is a service. We are to serve that ministry of reconciliation. We are to speak the word, the logos of reconciliation. Through our service to King Jesus and through proclaiming Jesus, we are sent for that mission and we have a message to share. What is the message? It's what Paul wrote in verse 19. Look at it again. To wit, 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Here's what the message is that you and I have to share. God sent Jesus. Jesus is the, the perfect son of God. He is the God man who went to the cross to give himself for our sin. God took all of your sin and mine, all of it, from the littlest infraction of his law to the greatest. And he put it on and in his son. Jesus literally became our sin. So that you and I could be forgiven. Declared righteous. That's the message that we have to share. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust. He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the spirit. That's the, the crucifixion but quickened that's the resurrection by the spirit he died was buried and rose again so that you and i could come to god jesus declared didn't he i am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me as disciples of jesus we should share jesus's message with the world number two i want you to see this as disciples we should share jesus's love with the world i want you to pay attention to what he says here in luke chapter 6 notice it if you would he selects the 12 and then the bible says this in verse number 17 look at it would you luke 6 verse 17 and verse 17 excuse me and he came down with them okay let's stop for a moment who is them the twelve first, but then it continues and says, and stood in the plain and the company of disciples came down from where he was, the mountain where he had spent the night in prayer. His twelve disciples that he had set apart as apostles are with him, but so are the other disciples of Jesus pay attention to that phrase and he came down with them what are they going to do now the bible goes on to tell us that a multitude is gathered to hear him and to be healed by him others have come to see jesus to hear jesus to be touched by jesus but don't miss this friend jesus came down with them he brought his apostles and his disciples with him why draw them into participation of his work listen to me very and do not miss this jesus could have done the work without them did Jesus need them to teach the multitudes? No. Did Jesus need them to touch the multitudes and heal them? No. Did Jesus need them to participate in power going out from him and healing those who needed to be healed? Did Jesus need them no, but the Bible declares to us he came down with them. He didn't need them, but he wanted them to participate in his work. Friends, listen carefully. Jesus wants to do the same with you. God the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit of God can accomplish the work without us but he wants us to participate not for his benefit but for our blessing I don't know about you but it actually means more to me that Jesus doesn't need me he wants me it means me to, more to me that Jesus doesn't need me to do his work, but he wants me to participate in his work. It means more to me 
that Jesus is not benefited by my participation in his work, but he wants me to participate in his work so that I can experience a blessing. Friends, listen to me. It is a blessing to be able to participate in his work. It's a blessing to be able to bring him glory. Do you understand today? What an awesome privilege it is to be able to bring God glory. Have you ever stopped to think, how in the world is it even possible that I can, I can bring him glory? I mean, he's already full of glory, isn't he? And yet, through my participation in his work, I can bring him glory glory it's a blessing isn't it to experience fruit he doesn't need to do that with me he doesn't need to do it in me he doesn't need to do it for me he doesn't need to do it through me he chooses to it's a blessing he doesn't need us but he wants us i see this happen with my children my children absolutely love it when I mow the lawn. I know it's a strange thing, isn't it? But when it's time to mow the lawn, see me get my grubby clothes on and my work boots, and they ask me, Daddy, what are you doing? They might be jumping on the trampoline. They might be playing with their toys. And I tell them, Daddy's going to mow the lawn. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, can I help you? You say, well, they just want to ride on the... No, it's a push mower. They don't want to go for a ride. They literally want to stand at the handlebar with me and push the mower to cut the grass. I only pray they'll still want to when they're teenagers so I can let them do it. But literally, they want to just stand next to Daddy, holding the bar, walking along, cutting the grass. Do I need them? I mean, honestly, do I need them to do that? No. I don't need their help. In fact, it doesn't necessarily benefit me in any way because it slows me down a little bit. But I'll tell you this, friend. When Daddy says, you know what, I'll slow down so you can come alongside me and push them over with me, it's a blessing to them. They enjoy that time with Daddy. They enjoy participating in that work and in the fruit of the labor. Do you understand that that's the same way it is with God? He doesn't need us. He wants us. It doesn't benefit him in any way, but it blesses us in many ways. He came down with them. He didn't need them there to do the work, but he wanted them there. And I'm so glad that he wants me. And he wants you. How much more than my children coming alongside me pushing the lawnmower, how much more for the child of God who is privileged to go with him, to work with him and serve him. God help us to get out of the habit of saying, I am going to work for God. No, friend, I don't go to work for God. I go to work with God. Help us to get out of the habit of saying, wow, man, I, I've just got to do this hard labor for him. No, I get to work alongside him. He, he gives me that privilege. The Bible tells us here that he brought them down, and now the crowd is gathering, and they came from everywhere. Tells us here they came from Jerusalem and Judea, the strong Orthodox Jewish regions. They came from Galilee the lax Jewish region where the people from Jerusalem and Judea thought they were the, uh, the people from Gal Galilee, they were the, the no-name Jews. They were the, uh, they were the untraditional Jews, the non-Orthodox Jews. They were the liberal Jews. But then there were also people from the, the regions of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile cities. Likely Gentiles mixed into this crowd. People from all over, from different walks of life, they came to hear and be healed by them, by Jesus, excuse me, and Jesus worked among them. Now I have a question, why? Why give himself to them? 
Why give them his energy and his time? Many in that crowd would one day be those who would turn away and go back from following him. Why give himself to at least one of the apostles he chose? A guy by the name of Judas Iscariot? Do you think Jesus didn't know that Judas Iscariot was the one who would betray him? I think he did. Certainly. One church member asked their pastor, why choose Judas? And the pastor looked right back and said, I've got an even bigger question for you. Why choose me? Why would Jesus give his time, his energy, to the people who were there, many of whom would turn away and go back from following him, many of whom would join with the religious leaders later on and cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Jesus knew that that was coming. So why do this? Why work among them? Why teach them? Why heal them? There's only one simple answer. He loved them. He loved them as he loves you and as he loves me. We've been so blessed ever since last Sunday when I commented about a needy family that God brought across our path that many of you have come forward asking how, how you can help. And I'm thankful for that. I also received an email from someone who shared with me that a church they attended in another state for several years avoided people like that because they often take advantage of the church. They, they never visit. They never become members. They, they never give back. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not act on the same basis? I mean, could you imagine if Jesus determined what he would or would not do based on the majority outcome? Jesus comes down from the mountain where he spends the night in prayer. He sees this crowd gathered. He knew the majority would some, someday go back from following him. He knew that people he healed would not be. He knew that people who were there listening to him would someday join with the religious leaders and say, crucify, crucify him. If Jesus had said, well, you know, the majority of them are going to be like that. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to minister to them. I'm not going to heal them. I'm not going to work among them. I'm not going to teach them. I'm glad Jesus did. I'm glad Jesus hadn't looked at me and said, Mike, I know all the times you're going to fail. I know all the times you're going to make the wrong choice. I know the times you're going to do the wrong thing and fail to do the thing you ought to do. I'm not giving myself to you. We know Jesus wouldn't do that, don't we? Why? One reason and one reason alone. It's not because he needs me. It's because he loves me. Jesus' actions in the world were motivated by love, the same as ours should be. Love, that is God's love, isn't going to ask, well, what am I going to get back out of that? Love that is like God's love isn't going to, to only give in proportion to what someone has the ability to give back. Love that loves like Jesus' love did isn't going to seek those type of situations. It's not. It's going to give without expectation of getting anything back. It's going to pour out without expectation of being poured back into. It's going to love and serve and speak without any expectation 
of any kind. And that is what Jesus' followers are called to do. Number three, would you see this? As disciples of Jesus, we should share his message and his love with the world. As disciples, we should share Jesus' power with the world. The Bible tells us here that as the people came, some amazing things happened. Those who had diseases and demons were healed. Those who came bound, expecting deliverance, experienced deliverance. Aren't you glad today that when you come to Jesus expecting deliverance, you get deliverance? You say, Pastor, I don't know, I've not experienced that. Then you've come to the wrong Jesus. Jesus gives in that way. The Bible tells us here that even those who simply touched him, there virtue out of him. The word virtue here translates the word dunamis. It's the word regularly used in the word of God to describe God's power. As people came to Jesus on that day, even as they reached out and touched him, God's power flowed out of him to heal their disease, to vanquish the demon that possessed them. It mimics what took place when he healed the woman with the issue of blood, as recorded in Mark chapter 5 and verse 30. You remember that woman came in faith believing, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. This will stop. And that's exactly what happened. And Jesus felt that power went out of him. He felt in him that virtue drawn out. And here's what I want you to catch. As Jesus served the needs of others, both in his preaching and his teaching, and the miraculous working of God, something went out of him. Now pay attention to this. It cost Jesus something to be used of God and to serve others. Virtue went out Did Jesus grow tired? Yes, he did. Did Jesus grow weary? Yes, he did. As Jesus went about sharing his message, his love, his power with the world, it cost him something to give as he did. Friends, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, have a unique opportunity to share Jesus' power with the world. I'm not talking about strange, weird, and unbiblical activities that flaunt a deceived and deceiving promotion of Christianity that we see in so many places today. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about clear evidences of God's power wrought in people's lives. Have you experienced answered prayer? What is answered prayer? Is it not God's power wrought in your life? Yes, praise God that he is faithful to answer us for the small things, but friends, God is also faithful to answer us for the big things. You've heard me say before, and it's a challenge to me, if God were measured by your prayer life, how big would your God be? We have a God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Then why are we so characteristically asking him for such small things? I have a big God who can do big things. Call unto me and I will show you little puny things. He said, 
Call unto me and I will show thee what? Great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Stop asking God for such small things. Let's be faithful to ask God for big things. Have you experienced miracles? Have you experienced miracles in your life? Have you seen God do miracles in the lives of others and situations around you? Why stay silent about it? How can we share his power with the world? We can share his power by proclaiming what we have seen God do in, for, through our own lives. We can pray for God to work in miraculous ways. You say, no, that's done. No, God still does miracles today. Have you experienced the demonstrations of God's power in your life? Hey, hey, let me ask you this. Have you ever come expecting deliverance and experienced it? You experienced his power and you can share it. Have you ever come praying for a big thing and God answered in a big way? You experienced his power and you can share it. Jesus' disciples experience and then have the opportunity to share his power with the world does the bible teach us that god's power which raised jesus from the dead is in us <clears throat> pastor i don't know about that exactly what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 does he not tell us that he has placed his spirit in us if we know Jesus Christ is our savior who is the spirit of God we proclaim don't we that we believe in one God who exists, if you will, in what? Three persons. The Father, the Son, and what? The Holy Spirit. So when we say the Holy Spirit is in us, what we are saying is God is in us. That's powerful, isn't it? How dare we? How dare I? be guilty of wasting what God has given me. If we're disciples of Jesus, we should share his message. We should share his love. We should share his power. We should share Chris, sharing, sharing, that's what Christians do. Let's not think of it as a way to remind others of their obligation to share with us, but to remind ourselves of the obligation we have to share Jesus' message, his love, and his power with us.